Well, good morning. My name is Phil. I'm the teaching pastor of the Nashville campus, and it's a pleasure for me to be with you all this morning. Um, I recently heard a story about this bike race. Um, it's uh, known for being the opposite of what you expect. Uh, it's not long or fast. It's actually the exact opposite. Um, why do I bring that up? Um, well, because Lord was able to use it twice for his opening illustration in the last four weeks, so I figure, why not me? Um, now, the reason why it's a great illustration of the essential element of this book, that Jesus is the one who turns this world upside down. He is the one who turns our values, our priorities, and pursuits, and that his kingdom subdues all other kingdoms as well. And so we come to this text this morning with that backdrop. We come looking to see and look at this servant king and see how his life redefines our own. And so what we're doing this morning is we're going to skip ahead um, into chapter 11. We'll come back to the end of chapter 10 after Easter. But this morning we're going to come and join Christians around the world as we focus our heart's attention on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I pray you do, let's grab them and turn to Mark chapter 11. And I invite you to stand with me if they're reading God's word, if you are able. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one as yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord is need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left. For Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. You may be seated. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come now to fixate our hearts and our minds upon your word. And Lord, we come pleading that you would show us Jesus, that we would see him in all his splendor and his glory, and see him as the king our hearts truly long for. Speak to us now, Lord, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, I began my seminary studies, and I remember this longing to be mentored um, by the rock star. Um, you know, he's the, the renowned communicator, the leadership guru, the um, uh, perfect strategist, and the Lord gave me Patrick. Now, Patrick didn't exactly meet my initial expectations. And so a few months after I started there, I was at this regional pastor's gathering, and this older pastor came up to me and said to me, young man, are you working with Patrick? And I said, yeah, I'm his youth pastor. And he said to me, son, you need to understand one thing. My favorite pastor in the whole world is Patrick Womack. And I thought to myself, really? Like, not John Piper, not Tim Keller, not Chuck Swindoll, not either of the Stanleys? I mean, none of them. That guy. Huh. And I walked away. And then I served alongside him for eight years. And I saw a man who faithfully delivered the word of God week in, week out. 
I saw him as he loved, cared, and shepherded a congregation like no one I'd ever seen before. And I saw him walk with such humility and grace that at moments I even questioned that he had a sin nature. Um, It's kind of sick at moments. Uh, But I, I saw this man who showed me what it meant to follow Jesus and to serve as one of his shepherds. You see, he didn't meet my initial expectation. But as I grew to know him, he far exceeded them because he was far better. Now, in this morning's text, I pray the Lord would do something similar in our lives as we come to know and experience this Jesus. And then as we come to know and experience him, we will find him that he may not meet our expectation, but find him to be the one who is better than our expectations. You see, our text is full of expectations. Remember, the Jews were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so they longed for someone to come and to overthrow their oppressors. They longed for someone to bring peace and to bring greatness again. And what you and I need to understand this morning is that we are no different. That ultimately we long for the same thing. Sure, it may look a little different in our day, in our age, and in our own lives. But when you begin to trace the story, you see we all long for a king. You see, in the very beginning, God created us to live underneath his kingship. And when mankind had rebelled against them, we sought to put ourselves on the throne. And everything went wrong from there on out. It brought disaster and destruction in our lives, in our relationships, in society, and the world around us. And ever since that moment, we have been looking for someone else to sit upon the throne who will clean up our mess who will fix our problems and make things right again. You see, whether it's uh, the candidates we vote for, whether it's the trainers in our gyms, or whether it's the legends and stories that we tell, they all tell us something. We all want a king. Tim Keller puts it this way. This longing is embedded in the legends of many cultures. And though the stories are all different, they all have a similar theme. A true king will come back, slay the dragon, kiss us, and wake us out of our sleep of death. Rescue us from imprisonment in the tower. Lead us back into the dance. A true king will come back to put everything right and renew the entire world. You see, the question is not if we will seek and serve a a king. The question is who will be the one we seek and serve as king. And I pray as we come to this text, as we encounter this King of Kings, Jesus, we will find our answer. You see, we're going to see three things about him this morning. First is that he is a king we can trust, verses 1 to 6. Second, he is a king we can respect, verses 7 to 10. And thirdly, he is a king we can love, verse 11. Now, we pick up the story this morning as Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem and stops in the city of Bethany and Bethpage. Now, these uh, stood on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives and had an amazing view of the city. If you look at the screen behind me, you'll get a glimpse of what it might have been like in those days and times. It stands about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And what we're going to see this morning is that the Lord is about to do something he has never done before. Something is repeated, told others not to do. He's about to go public with his identity as the Messianic king. Now remember, up to this point in the story is that whenever someone is healed or someone begins to get a glimpse of who he is as Messiah, what does he do? He shuts it down immediately. We call it the secrecy motif. But now Jesus has determined it is the time to make clear to everyone who he is and what he has come to do. 
And so we come and we look at this text and we find that, number one, he is a king we can trust. Now, remember, we're picking up in Bethany Bethpage. And if you remember, something other momentous happened in that location. It was the raising of who? Lazarus. Now, that happened six weeks prior. Now, we stand here in the, kind of the third phase of Jesus' ministry. We have the early Judean, the Galilean, and then this training of the Twelve. And so in this period of his ministry, there are very few miracles. He's mostly spending his time on his disciples. And so when he does a miracle, especially within Israel, it's a big thing. And so he intentionally comes and hears, heals Lazarus. Remember, what did he do? He waited. Why? Because he loved them. And he longed to display God's glory to them. And so after this healing, Jesus leaves town and kind of goes on this missionary journey up to the north in Galilee on his way back. Well, can you imagine what life was like in that town as Jesus left? I mean, you have a living, breathing, walking billboard for the power and might of Jesus. I mean, he's all over the news waves, he's in the blogs, he's on social media, he is everywhere. Everyone wants to tell the story of this man who was dead and is alive again. And so it's almost as if this uh, amazing news is festering in Bethany in a good way. Now he comes and makes his way back, and this, uh, fe- this great anticipation is met by the festal, festal, festive spirit of Passover. Now remember, for us to rem- remind ourselves what Passover was like, it was kind of like if you took Christmas and slammed it with CMA Fest and free Chick-fil-A Day. I mean, it's a day everyone looks forward to, all right? So there is this great excitement revolving around this festival. And so as Jesus comes, this becomes one of the pieces of the perfect storm that is being created in this moment of history as everything is barreling and coming together toward the cross of Christ. Now, we pick up the story in Bethany, and Jesus tells the disciples to send, and sends them on a fairly peculiar task. I don't know if you've been asked lately to pick up a donkey, but I doubt you have. And he goes to the disciples and says, hey guys, I want you to go into town and I want you to find a donkey and bring it back to me. And if someone has a problem with it, you just say, the master has need of it. Now, there's a lot of debate over this passage because you look at it and wonder, what exactly is going on here? Because when I first read it, it kind of feels like Jesus is teaching his disciples a Jedi mind trick. This is not the donkey you're looking for. The master has need of it. I mean, right? I mean, it kind of has that feeling to like, what is going on here? And so there has been a lot of debate whether this is kind of this prophetic foresight or this is Jesus' impeccable party planning. Now, either an option for for a Bible-believing Christian, and I would probably lean toward the second because he did a similar thing in his setting up the Lord's Supper. Either way, the point is clear. Jesus is in utter, absolute, sovereign control of every detail of this story. None of it is happenstance. None of it is an accident. Jesus is setting all the pieces of the puzzle together in this moment to lead to Calvary. Now, here's what you and I need to understand from that. Now, there are moments in our life when when, what God is doing and what God is calling us to do don't make sense. And the question is, what do we do in those moments? Will we turn from him in disbelief? Will we turn on him in fear or anger? Or will we trust him and obey him? Now, when we were thinking of going south to plant a church, 
we were praying for God's leading, and there was this large church in Chicago that was asking us to go and to plant a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, you have to understand, we lived there for eight years. We love Charlotte. And uh, we thought everything was moving in that direction. And all of a sudden, we started spinning wheels. And this small, tiny little door was opening in Nashville. Now, you have to understand, me and my wife were probably the two most reluctant people in the nation to move here. We did not want to come here. And slowly the Lord moved in mine, and especially my wife's heart, um, to come here. And, and I remember the day that I had to go and tell this uh, pastor recruiter from this church that we think God's leading in a different direction. And I remember when I told him this, he literally responded in this way. You're making the biggest mistake of your life. Nashville is where church planners go to die. And I'm like, thanks? I mean, I, I mean what are you saying? To be honest. I agreed with him. I couldn't believe anything about what God was calling us to do. I quit my job with nothing in front of me. I, I went and said, this calling to go this place, we don't really want to go, but we feel beyond a shadow of a doubt God is calling there for this year plan in a place we did not know, not knowing what was on the horizon. I mean, we didn't know fellowship was even anywhere in the picture. And we learned at that moment when God calls you to something, we don't understand what he's doing or what he is calling you to do, you can trust him. Because I look back on those days and those times, and I can see at every juncture that these moments that seem crazy, these moments that seem mere happenstance were divine appointments. Everyone leading to another to bring us to where God would have us to do what God would have us to do. And so this morning, you may be going through something like that. You, you don't understand what God is doing, what God is calling you to do. He may have called you to Greek, uh, Greece, not Greek, that's the language. Greece this morning. I mean, you're like, I don't know, I'm not supposed to go to Greece, but all of a sudden I feel God leading me there. There's this leading, and I'm telling you, in this moment, you can trust him. He's a king you can trust. You see, if you're going to follow or to ride along with someone, you want to know you can trust them. You want proof? Imagine you're going onto an airplane. And in the, compet, on, in the cockpit, you see Solly Sullenberger. All right, now take that same exact scenario, and you walk into the air, airplane, and all of a sudden you see Cheech and Chong, probably with a billow of smoke behind them, all right? I mean, you, one leads to confidence, right? The other one leads to grave concern. And what we see in this passage was Jesus' intricate attention to detail, sovereignly bringing all these events into play. We see that he is in control. He is competent. He is a king we can trust. See, just as he orchestrated the events of Jesus' life, he orchestrates the events of our lives as well. Second, we see that he is a king we can respect, verses 7 to 10. Now, it's one thing to trust someone. You feel that they're competent, they're in control. It's another thing to respect someone. And I've met doctors that I trust, but I do not respect. <laughs> they are great in their field, but they lack something behind the scenes. You see, trust demands something particular, certain or special qualities. And chief in my mind are the qualities of courage and humility, both which are exhibited by Jesus in our text this morning. Now remember, as, as Jesus is bringing, the, the disciples are bringing the, disciple, the donkey to Jesus, Jesus goes and sits upon it. 
Now, we don't think much of it at first glance, but we begin to see in the context of history what he was doing as he enters into the city. You see, in those day and age, when a conquering king would come to the city, he would come and ride upon a war horse. And he would have a procession of people in front and behind who would be singing his praise, and he would make his way into the city and enter into the arena or a temple in which he would cleanse or make an offering. Some of you are already beginning to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And so when Jesus comes into the city in this way, he is saying something very clear to the Roman emperor, emperor, and it's this, Caesar is not Lord, I am. I am the king, and I am coming in triumph. Make no mistake the courage that was necessary in that moment. Taking on the most powerful, quote-unquote, man in the world. And this public declaration wouldn't just be evident to the Romans, it would also be evident to the Jews. And we find this in all the prophecies that are fulfilled in this passage. The first one is seen from Zechariah chapter 14. You see, after the fall of Jerusalem, the glory of God departed from the temple, In Zechariah 14, there's a promise, a prophecy that is partially fulfilled in this text and then also in Christ's second coming in which the king, God, will come from Mount Olivet or Mount of Olives to come to fight for his people and the glory return. Where was Bethany and Bethpage? On the eastern slope of where? The Mount of Olives. The second thing we find here is that there is a fulfillment of the... Psalm 118. Now, you have to know that Psalm 118 was part of a larger section called the Ascent Psalms. They were essentially the playlist or the mixtape, depending on your age, of what you would have for a road trip. All right? So on the road trip and pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would sing Psalm 113 to 118 over and over again. And so 118 says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and even has a reference to laying down branches before the king. So you can imagine as these people begin seeing Jesus coming in this way, immediately they make the connection and they kind of think of that song they sung over and over again and start singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's something we understand about that word, Hosanna. You see, Hosanna was, or Hosanna was both a prayer and a praise. I had a seminary prof who would kill me for saying Hosanna, all right? Hosanna. Um, and Hosanna was both a prayer and a praise. But over time, it had developed into something else as well. You see, it become essentially a political slogan. It was a nationalistic term. So it would be something akin to um, change, or yes, we can, or make America great again. And so when we hear that word Hosanna, it means, Lord, save us, save us now. And the question is, save us from what? What's been clear throughout the entire gospel that their answer was one thing, save us from Roman oppression. Now, I want you to think back to the beginning of this book. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, what does he call the people to do? Repent and believe. And so this public declaration of his kingship should evoke something, and it should be the repentance of his people and not deteriorate into a political rally. 
Well, that's just what we find in our text this morning. Now, you'll also notice something else that happens in this text. You see, when Jesus gets on this horse, what the disciples do? They take off their coats and lay it down, and then the people begin to lay down their coats before Jesus. Now, this, this coat had its precedence back in 2 Kings chapter 9. You see, when Jehu was announced as king, what the people did is they took off their coats and laid it before him. And it was a sign of two things. First, it was a sign of acknowledgement. You're saying, you are the king. And second, it was a sign of submission. Not only are you the king, you are my king. You see, the coat symbolized the whole, the totality of their life. And so when I see him as king, I take off my coat and I say to him, you are the king and you are my king. And I submit myself before you. You see, we will either see Jesus as someone who comes just to make our life a little bit better, just to make us a little bit more comfortable, or we will fall before him as Lord. You see, there are only two options for us in this text. is either we come to him to crown him or to kill him. He will take nothing in between. The second thing we see in his courage or in his respect is also seen in his humility. Now in Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy is made about the promised Davidic king, the Messianic king. In it we read this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. He comes unlike any other king. Great kings come on great steeds, not on a donkey. It's kind of like if you saw a president or you saw a movie star show up to a palace or a red carpet in a Ford Escort. There's just something wrong about this picture, right? I mean, limos, Bentleys, caddies all seem appropriate. A Ford Escort does not. You see, see that God is communicating something very clearly about our king. Yes, he is majestic, but also he is meek. He is not full of himself. As Philippians 2 tells us, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant for us. You see, Jesus is not a king as we expected. He is full of majesty, meekness, and as we will see, mercy. You see, he's not a king only that you can trust and respect. But he exhibits true greatness in being one you can love. Now, in verse 11, it ends kind of peculiar. It's kind of fairly anticlimactic. I mean, after this great procession, after this great statement, Jesus comes and he enters into the temple and he looks around, and he leaves. And I read that, I'm like, what is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Why would you even put that in there? It seems so unimportant. But I would argue it is important for three things. First is the end of a chapter. You see, this will mark the ending of this segment of Jesus' ministry as he enters into the Passion Week. 
From this moment on, everything will change. There will be no more hallelujahs and hosannas. The crowds will turn upon him. And so Jesus comes silently taking stock and looking around him. You know, it reminds me of what my wife and I did as we left North Carolina on our way to Chicago. It'd be the last time that we locked the door to our house. The kids were staying with some friends, and we just walked through hand in hand, one room after another, with bare wall after bare wall, and we wept. We knew that this moment marked the ending of one chapter of our life and the beginning of another. And so Jesus in this moment comes, looks around him, understanding this chapter is now ending and the next horrific chapter is about to begin. The second thing it shows us is that it's an assessment of the problem. Now, Jesus is coming in like a contractor or an assessor after a storm or a fire. He's coming in to assess the damage. And so Jesus comes into his father's house and he begins to look around. Now, he would enter into the court of the Gentiles. This was the largest part of the temple. And it would be filled with thousands upon thousands of of people. And the early historian Josephus would even argue that there would be 255,000 sheep. Imagine the sounds and the smells of this place. And Jesus would look around and be reminded of the intentions of his father. The next day he will come back to cleanse the temple and he he will say that you've turned my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. That he would see his father's intentions dashed for human profit and it breaks his heart. And the third and most important thing I think this reveals about him is that it reveals his heart. Now, Mark does not give us all the details of this, but Luke does. In Luke chapter 19, we read that as Jesus is entering into the city, he saw the city and he wept. And he said this. He said, Only if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. That in this moment, as if we're getting a backstage pass into the life and heart of Jesus, as he will gaze upon the city that will turn upon him, reject him, and crucify him, and his response is not anger, but of care. And he weeps on their behalf. You see, what a person weeps over reveals much about themselves. When we weep over our losses, we reveal our self-centeredness. When we weep over our loved ones, we reveal our care. But when we weep over our enemies, we reveal the very heart of God. You see, we love because He first loved us. And in Romans 5, 8, we read this, but God demonstrated His own love for us for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 
is that not only does he weep over us, he dies in our stead. And we begin to find that peace is not made on the backs of war horses or political revolutions. It's not made on the back of our religious obedience, but is made on the back of God's only Son. For by his wounds we will be healed. You see, this suffering servant, this weeping prophet, priest, and king reveals to us what, what it looks like when majesty, meekness, and mercy are all bound up in one. He is not a king as we expect. He's better than our expectations. Which makes me wonder this. Don't you want a king like that? And over the years, I've counseled a lot of men and inevitably we come to the topic of fathers. And typically when I hear them speak of their fathers, I hear things like disappointment, fear, and anger. And often when those feelings begin to express themselves, I ask these guys, I'm like, well, what do you wish your dad was like? And when they begin to describe what they wish their dad was like, I begin to think of a dad and the horses of history. There once was this missionary named John G. Patton. He was a Scottish missionary in the South Seas to the cannibals. And he was given a godly, godly father. And he tells a story that when he was on his way to seminary to receive training, his father walked alongside him for six of the 40 miles from their house to the train station. He said, on the early part of the journey, my father, we talked about the things of the Lord, and he spoke encouragement and his longing for my life. He said, at one point, my father grew silent. And he began to weep. And for the remainder of our journey, he wept and he prayed over me. He said, I did not see, hear his words, but I saw his lips. He said, finally, when they came to their appointed destination, their appointed departure, his father stared at him, fighting back the tears. And finally, when he was able to compose himself, he took out his hand to his son and said, Son, may God bless you. May your father's God prosper you and keep you from evil. He stared into the eyes of his son for a few more moments. And he embraced him and wept. Finally, they say their final goodbyes and they walk off from one another. John said he ran so hard to that corner to get his father out of sight. And when he got out of sight, he fell on the ground and wept saying this, that my heart was far too full and sore to go another inch. He wept and he wept and he wept and after he finally looked back to see if his dad was finally turned on his way back home, he said in this moment of gratitude, he turned toward his heavenly father saying, oh God, what a father. And you see, as you and I have walked 
along this road with this man, Jesus Christ. And we have seen in our own lives that every time that we had turned our backs, every time that we withheld our love, every time that we had wished him dead, he has responded with tears and the giving of himself. And I ask us the question, what is our response to a king like this other than to say, oh, what a savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless me, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. And then comes that last verse. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. This week, as we walk along this road to Calvary, May our hallelujahs go to Him, our glorious King, who for our sake became poor, who for our sake gave of Himself. May our hallelujahs rise this week to the King like no other. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to You with absolute gratitude for giving us such a king, such a savior like this. And Father, I want to pray in this moment for those in this room who have been hesitant to trust you, hesitant to respect you, hesitant to love you. And I pray as we come and fixate our hearts and minds this Passion Week on the one given for us, that you will draw their hearts and convince their minds that what they see and experience in the pages of your word is true. And Lord, I pray this morning in those moments where we are struggling to trust you, Lord, that we would come and to see you as the king in control. That we will respond in trust and obedience no matter what you do and no matter what you call us to do. Oh, Lord, this morning we thank you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.